0: Well good morning, Chapel family. What a good morning it has been. I encourage you to take your Bibles, open it up. If you need to use the table of contents to help you, please do. Go to the middle of the Bible, hang a right, and you'll go past uh, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, and then you'll make it to Amos. And a little book just uh, may take you a little while to find it. but uh we met redneck prophet last week, Amos, the rancher farmer that God called from the sheepfolds of Tekoa to go and to preach to the northern kingdom of Israel. If you and I were advising God, and sometimes we try to do that, but it never works out well, but if we were advising God in this, we'd probably say, God, this is a bad idea. Choosing a spokesman to go speak to a prosperous, and a cosmopolitan nation, and you select a redneck from the sticks, somebody kind of like, you know, Phil Robinson, and you're sending him up to this sophisticated nation, and that's strike one against the mission. But it gets worse because God is sending the southerner to the north, and that's strike two. It's the mid-century, the mid-eighth century BC. That's the 750s BC. It's been about 120 to 130 years since the, the nation of Israel split into two. They had a, a civil war, a secession as the north split off from the south. The northern kingdom is Israel. The southern kingdom is Judah. And while at this point in time there is now no more fighting between the two nations, it hasn't been that way for long. It was just a mere 20 or 40 years somewhere in there before this that was the last of the conflicts between the two. And so sending Amos to Israel is rather like sending a Boston Yankee to go preach to Alabama after the Civil War. You know, as a kid growing up in the South, I I remember that the term Yankee was still not used in a favorable way, and that was a hundred years after the U.S. Civil War. So how will our redneck friend gain an audience up in the North we really don't get any details in the book here about where or when or how Amos preached his message. All we have here really in the, in this book is the message that he preached. And Amos begins, we did verse 1 last week, so we're going to pick it up in verse 2. Amos begins his message. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. Three things just out of that verse in Amos's introduction. The first thing is he says, the Lord roars, and the point of that is this. Our message this morning is called the indictment. And Amos starts off and he says, the Lord roars. And his point in that is that the Lord is roaring like a lion over in chapter 3. A little bit later, Amos will say this. He said, the lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord has spoken. You picture a lion pouncing on his prey and roaring, and that's a frightening thing. And if the lion is God, it ought to get your attention. And his point is, you better listen. When God roars, you'd better listen. His second point in this introduction is that the Lord roars from Zion. He utters his voice from Jerusalem. That is a very subtle but stinging message to the northern kingdom. If you know the history, after the the North broke away from the southern uh, the Southern Kingdom, the Northern Kingdom, King Jeroboam at that time was uh, afraid that the people would go down to the South and worship there, where God had told him to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. And he said, "That's not a good idea." So he set up his own their own religion up in the North and made it look the same and kind of sound the same, but it wasn't the same they set up a temple in Bethel and another temple up in Dan. And the people were worshiping theirs. And Amos's point here is, you may have changed where you worship, but God hasn't changed. He hasn't moved from where He is speaking to His people and where He has commanded for us to worship Him in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. Thirdly, he says, judgment is coming. He says, for the pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. His point by that is that judgment is coming. It's going to affect the whole land of Palestine from the southern pasture lands down in the bottom of Judah up to the lush green fertile fields on the slopes of Carmel. It's from the north to south, from the whole land, he says, judgment is coming. Now those words should have caught the attention of a people who claimed to be God's people, but somehow I doubt that they did. I think that what probably comes next is what got the people's attention and got Amos' words going viral around the country It's what started the blogosphere going and the tweets going around as Amos begins to speak in the next verses. And from verse 3 of chapter 1 all the way through the end of chapter 2, Amos gives a series of eight oracles. Eight pronouncements, eight statements from God. Each one is different, but each one follows a similar pattern. If you had the time this morning to go through and and read through, and I encourage you to do that on your own, you'll you'll notice this pattern that's there. And I'll, I'll just point your attention to it right now. Each one begins with this phrase, Thus says the Lord. And then it continues with this a phrase like this, for three transgressions of, and He names a place, or He names a people, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. An interesting little phrase. Then God names a crime of that place. Then God says, so I will send a fire upon, and He names again the people or the place. Then God says, This fire shall devour the strongholds of... And again, He names the people or the place. That's the pattern. And it goes throughout each of these eight oracles, each of these pronouncements, each of these indictments that God gives against the nations. Let me just read the first one for you so you see the pattern. Verse 3, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with sledges of iron. There's the crime. So I will send a fire upon the house of Haziel and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon, and him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden and the people of Syria shall go into exile to Kerr. Now, we don't have a lot of time this morning to spend on any of these. We're going to spend more time on this first one than than the others, but just to get the pattern. But again, God begins with a nation and He He says, Thus says the Lord, and He names a, a place. For three transgressions of, and he, here it is, Damascus. Damascus is the capital of Syria or of Aram. It's known as both places. Syria where the Syrians are or Aram where the Arameans are. It's the same place. It's this northern um, top on your side, top left part of the Holy Land. And by the way, if you have the little notebook to take notes for in series, there's a map in the back. And it's the same map so you can see and and see the the different countries that are there. But he begins with Damascus, the capital of Syria. And he says their crime is threshing Gilead with sledges of iron. And you say, that's awful! That's a horrible thing! I can't believe those people did that! I have no idea what a sledge of iron is. I have no idea what Gilead is, but... It's awful. <laughs> well, it's, it'll help us if we to appreciate what he's saying if we understand a couple of things. What is a threshing sledge? Well, that's a threshing sledge. It's a sled, and on the bottom of the sled there are are blades of metal or of stone that are that are put into the wood. And what they do is they put that sled and they run it across the sheaves or the stalks of grain to thresh or to separate the kernels of grain from the stalks, from the straw. And what he's saying is, well, secondly, let's answer this question, what is Gilead? Well, Gilead is a place. Gilead is a region, a portion of Israel Basically, it describes the whole part of Israel that's on the Transjordan, the east side of the Jordan. They're across the Jordan River from everybody else in Israel. And so what he's saying is this. He's going back in history. Over a period of about 40 years, the people of Damascus, the Syrians, the Arameans, they dominated and they ruthlessly oppressed the whole nation of Israel. And with particular cruelty, they had crushed the Israelites in Gilead. And so this saying, it's using a, a word picture, a poetic image of taking these slushing thredges and, and like they tear up the wheat, he's saying that's what the people of Damascus, the Syrians did to the people of Gilead. Now by this time in history, it was some 40, 50 years after that time, King Jeroboam II is on the throne and his father began a, a deliverance from the Syrians, from the Arameans, and Jeroboam has continued that. They have beaten back the Arameans. They have, they have defeated them. They have gotten back all of their property, all of their lands but the atrocities that were committed against the Israelites and particularly the, the folks in Gilead are still fresh in the minds of the people. And I'm sure they are glad to hear that God has not overlooked those atrocities and they're rejoicing that justice will finally be done. God will destroy the nation of Syria, of Aram, And they'll finally get what they deserve. They, the Arameans, the folks of Damascus, are being punished for their crimes of cruelty. Probably the crowd is erupting and cheering. As Amos. As Amos pronounces this judgment, the folks are probably going, Amen! Yeah! Yeah! Woo! Those folks folks in Damascus, they're finally going to get it! Yeah! I don't know who this preacher is, but he's good. And so Amos continues. He's gotten the folks' attention. And they're on board with him. They're with him. Yeah, preach on, brother. Preach on. And now God repeats the pattern seven more times. Thus, the Lord roars from Zion. Thus says the Lord. We're just going to quickly glance at these. We don't have time to read them all in depth. Seven more times. Verses 6-8. through eight. Thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Gaza. Where in the world is Gaza? Gaza is the capital city of Philistia where the Philistines are from. You remember those folks from back in your Bible history. That's the story. You remember Goliath was of the Philistines as young David went out to face him. They were an arch enemy of Israel for much of their, of their old history. And God speaks now about the Philistines What is their crime? Verse six it says they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. Philistines had been raiding Israelite villages and capturing Israelites and then selling them into slavery to Edom. It's a crime as current as today's news human trafficking. He moves on a third time. He gets into the pattern. A third oracle. Verse 9, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Tyre. Tyre is up to the north and along the Mediterranean coast. It is the capital city of the, of the nation of Phoenicia. to where the Phoenicians live. And what is their crime? It says, again, verse 9, Says they delivered up a whole people to Edom. That sounds just exactly like the Philistines. But it goes on, and they did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. The same crime as the Philistines. But one more thing is added. It says these folks broke a covenant of brotherhood. They broke a treaty. They didn't honor their commitment. They had made a, a some kind of a of a treaty of friendship and a partnership with the Israelites and they broke it and sold them out instead. Treachery. A fourth oracle, verse 11, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four. Edom. Edom is the A land down to the south and to the east of Israel. The land of Edom is the home of the Edomites. Relatives of the Israelites. They are the descendants of Jacob's brother. You remember, Jacob had a brother named Esau. His descendants became the Edomites. What is the crime of the Edomites? Go on in verse 11. He, that's The nation of Edom pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity, and his anger tore perpetually. See, Edom, you recall, is who the Philistines and the Phoenicians were selling the slaves to. The crime was, that was just all part of what was a relentless, ruthless, a merciless, unrelenting. Hating of the Jews. There was hatred and bigotry of the Edomites toward the Jews that led them to continually try to inflict pain and misery and violence upon the Hebrews. You can see that if you were a An Israelite, and you're listening to these these oracles, these messages from God that Amos is delivering, you're just you're you're going right on. Everybody we hate is getting pounded by God. This is good stuff. Amos may be a southerner or he may be a hick and a redneck, but these folks love him. This guy speaks good stuff. Verse 13, a fifth oracle. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four, the people of Ammon, the people of Ammon are kind of in the middle of the, of the area of Palestine over again on the east side. What is their crime? And by the way, the folks of of Ammon are also somewhat related. They are the descendants of Abraham's nephew, Lot. What is their crime? It says they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their border. Somewhere along the time, these folks in Ammon, they decided that, you know, We don't have enough stuff. We don't have enough space. We need a little more room. We're just gonna, we're just gonna expand into the territory of Gilead, that eastern side of Israel. And as part of it, they were ruthless and merciless against the most defenseless and the most innocent pregnant women and unborn children were slaughtered for the sake of property for the sake of profit. Again, we see that the stuff that's here is really not that far off from modern, our modern world where babies are slaughtered for the sake of convenience and a profit. There's another oracle Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Moab. Moab is just down to the south of, of Ammon. The Moabites are there. Their crime was committed not against Israel, but actually against the folks to the south who have been so horrible. And we've already seen the Edomites But the Moabites go against the Edomites and it's a rather unusual thing. Why is, what's their crime? Because you read down in verse one of chapter two, because he, Moab, burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. They desecrated the tomb, the tombs of kings. and to us that may not sound that that big a deal but it was big in that time and it actually is a big deal see what was the dish, what was the issue was that this desecration of the tombs and the burning of the bones of, of the king or kings it was a it was a statement it was a statement of humiliation, to humiliate and declare that the, the lives of these kings and the lives of these people were worthless. It was a devaluing of the dignity of human life, which is an offense to God who has made people in His own image. And again, we realize that the underlying crime here is something that is not uncommon to our modern world. And what we begin to find as we dig into the book of Amos is that its, its ancient message is very contemporary. As God looks at the crimes of the nations, there are things we see around us all the time. Another oracle, verse 4. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah, the southern kingdom, the southern nation of Israel. For three transgressions of Judah. What is their crime? Verse 4. Because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept His statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. Judas' crime is that they knew God's law. They had the Word of God. While they knew what God said, while they had the instructions of God, rather than keeping God's law, rather than listening to God's law, rather than following God's instructions, they replaced God's Word with their own opinions. With their own ideas, which God says are lies. When we take what God says and substitute something else, we lie. And that was the crime of Judah. And again, we they are devaluing God's Word. And and while again, many of the folks and probably most of the folks who are listening are just sitting here continuing to applaud and continuing to amen as Amos is preaching on, a few of the more astute folks have probably stopped to think for a minute, wait a second, You know, it was pretty good when you were, when you were really railing on Damascus. I, I enjoyed it when you were railing on Gaza and, and on Tyre and Edom. Yeah, those Edomites and Ammon. Yeah, those folks, man, they really deserve it. But you know, Judah, while we've been fighting with them tooth and nail, while we, we, you know, we've been going at it and for a century and more. And while I really don't like those, Yankees or whatever. They're family. They are descendants like we are of Abraham. And they are people of God's covenant like we are. This guy Amos is just getting a little too close. And that was exactly the point. you ever played battleship? You know the game where you have all the little holes and the little pegs and you you stick your ships on there and your opponent sticks their ships on their little board and you call out, you know, A3, you know, miss, you know, D4. And if you've ever played the game, you know that sometimes there gets that time where, you know, they're looking for that last little, you know, two-hole ship. And they have hit everywhere around it. And you know the next number they're going to call out is the one that's just going to land on your ship.
1: And it's going
0: down. And some of the folks have done the math. They've pulled the map out like this and they look around and they realize that, wait a minute, every single country around us has been hit by the judgment of God. And Amos hasn't folded up the pulpit and gone home. He's about to start off with one more, thus says the Lord. And there's only one more place <laughs> for this bomb to hit. And they start to shake a little bit. The crowd gets sullen and quiet. Because they realize the next words are, Thus says the Lord, verse 6, For three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. God begins an indictment, not just of the nation's, but of Israel. Everything before this has been the introduction. They just didn't realize it was how God was sucking them in. Every bit of it was true. God was and is going to judge these other nations. But He was getting their attention, getting them to listen, hoping that they wouldn't just hear with their ears, but listen with their hearts and with their minds. Because Israel has a crime for which God is about to issue judgment. As a matter of fact, for each of the other nations, God has has singled out one particular crime. In Israel's case, He's going to name seven. We don't have time to dig into each one. He begins in verse 6 and goes through the end of the chapter. There's a list of crimes. Verse 6, Listen to this one. Crime number one. Because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Their crime is heartless greed. They are so greedy that just because they want a little change, they're going to sell off. They'll sell out the righteous. The good person. doesn't matter how good you are, even maybe how much they know you. If they can make a profit off of your toast. And the poor... They'll take advantage of the poor to get a new pair of shoes. That's how little life and little people matter. There's injustice in verse 7. He says, verse 7 you read, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and they turn aside the way of the afflicted. The poor and the hurting are denied justice. Because the influential and the rich are either creating the injustice or they're just too busy to be bothered with the cares and the concerns of those people who just don't matter. Thirdly, God, as God speaks to His people, those who call themselves His people, says verse 7, a man and his father go into the same girl so that My holy name is profaned. Among the people of God, there is rampant immorality. And He just gives this one example to show just how pervasive and how perverted their immorality is, that it's considered normal, so normal that it's culturally acceptable. A father and his son go in and have relations with the same girl, and nobody bats an eye. Verse 8, he continues with a fourth crime of these folks. He says, they lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. These people are going through the motion of religion while they are acting and living in direct violation of God's law. You go back to Deuteronomy chapter 24 and there was, there's a law about taking the, the garment, the cloak of a poor person as, as security for a loan. You could do it for the daytime, but at the end of the day, whether the loan was paid back or not, you had to give the cloak, cloak back because it's the only, the only thing of warmth and protection for the poor person. And if it was a widow, you weren't supposed to take their cloak at all in security for a loan. It was a way of protecting the, the rights and the, the, the need of the poor. But he says these folks have taken those garments and they're taking them into the, the place of worship and they're laying the garment down and as they lay down to be comfortable in their worship in the evening, they're laying on the cloak of the poor while they say they're worshiping God. And God says, that is warped. (laughs) That isn't worship at all. Verse 80 continues, and in the house of their God, they drink wine. Notice he doesn't say in the house of God. Nor does he say in my house. He says in the house of their God. You see, what is also rampant in this nation of Israel is the worship of other gods. And God goes on in the next few verses and says, they worship other gods despite the fact that it is is I who have provided for them. It is I who have cared for them. It's I who brought them out of the land of Egypt and gave them this land. And He says that in the next verses. And He gets to the last two crimes down in verse 11. Verse 11. Verse 11, he says, And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. says, You took the people that I gave you to be godly, to be my servants, and you deliberately corrupted them because you don't want people serving God because it makes you look bad. And you took the people that I sent to speak to you, the prophets, and you rejected them and you said, shut up! We don't want to hear it! You rejected God's Word. Seven crimes of the nation of Israel As we look at these indictments of the nations and and His indictment of the people of Judah and the people of Israel, we realize that, again, mid-8th century century B.C. is not so far removed from 21st century A.D. Five observations as I quickly wrap this up. First, I I see that it is God who raises and who humbles and who deposes nations. We tend to go and study history and we tend to see the rise and the fall of nations as things that are due to factors of economics or factors of politics or the results of war. But God wants us to know that all the way through Scripture that the rise and fall of nations is actually due to the sovereign hand of a sovereign God who raises nations up and who deposes them as He will, and that God ultimately does so according to His justice. And that moves on to a couple of other things that recognize that God is aware God is aware of, and He keeps tracks. He keeps track of all of the deeds of all nations. There's nothing, anything. There's nothing that any people or any nation have done that has escaped God's notice. Thirdly, that God cares about the poor and the powerless. God cares about justice and fidelity. God cares about human life and human dignity. And therefore God will judge. And He will hold accountable every nation and every people according to their actions. And that's both a comfort, that's good news, because justice will ultimately be served. It's also a warning because God will judge the nation If a nation is full of greed and injustice, if a nation does not honor life and human dignity, God will judge such a nation. Fifthly, I observe that God is patient, but God's patience has a limit. You know, most of God's attributes are infinite. God is everywhere. He is all-powerful. He knows everything. God is infinitely just. He is infinitely loving. But God's patience has a limit. And that little phrase that He used every time is accentuating that. Warren Wearsby says that that little phrase for three transgressions and four is a Jewish idiom that means an indefinite number that has finally come to an end. God is patient and He puts up with crime number one and crime number two and crime number three, crime number four, that's it, I'm done. There is a time when God's patience comes to an end and He says enough and God will judge a nation. You know, we like hearing that God will judge. That He will judge cruel people who cut off the heads of innocent. Who cut off the heads of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And We think about that God will judge such people. We want to jump up and cheer. Yes, God. Go, God. We want to hear that We like to hear that God will judge those who traffic in human flesh, who view people as cattle to be used and abused and sold. We hear that God will judge such people. We go right on God. We hear that God will judge those who will not keep their word, who are treacherous, who will sell out others break promises and commitments, for profit, we cheer, we hear that God will judge those who are full of hatred and bigotry, we go, yes, right on, God. We hear that God will judge those who devalue and who think little of the dignity of human life, we say, yes, God, go for it. Those are big deals. They are serious crimes. And they are big deals to God. The danger is that we will fall into the trap of Israel who is listening to all of this and they are seeing those bombs fall in the nation and they are going, yes! And they are oblivious to the fact that God has a bigger problem with them. Because they are those who know what God has said. They are those who claim to be those who follow God, and they are guilty of great crimes before Him. And so Amos' ancient words echo from the halls of history, and they come to great relevance to those of us in the church in a land of people full of those who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. We live in a land and in a place filled with people who claim to follow Jesus, but where we elevate our opinions and our ideas over the Word of God and we neglect God's Word among people who claim to be followers of God but live as those who are greedy and can never get enough. We are never satisfied with the abundance of things we have. We clamor and strive and are consumed with having more. Folks who name the name of Jesus but are either outright taking abuse or abusing others and taking advantage of others or are implicitly and perhaps just tacitly apathetic, tolerant of injustice to those who are poor and powerless. People who are religious go through the motions of worship week after week but have no real heart for God and just play games people who claim to follow Jesus but actually have other gods we just don't call them Baal or Asherah or whatever we call we call them things like money possessions prestige pleasure beauty popularity We become people who stifle God's voice by corrupting those whom God sends as His servants or by ignoring God's Word, stifling His voice. The words of Amos are not words that we really long to hear when we get down to it. Because they are words that call for us to examine ourselves and say, Lord, is that me? The good news, you see, is that there is grace. And we talked about it at the table this morning. That grace calls for us. If you are someone who has never placed your faith in Jesus Christ and never come to know the forgiveness of God, God offers to forgiveness to all and any who will call upon Him. And it's that same grace that calls to all of us who who say, yes, I, I trust in Jesus. But that same grace then calls us to live as the people of God rather than living as the nations around us. Father, we hear these words this morning. They're strong, strong words. They are words we need to hear for overall, Father, we recognize as we look at the church we are a weak church in our culture, in our nation. We are a weak church because overall the church of Jesus Christ is sold out. Not to Jesus. We're sold out to other gods and other stuff. To our own ideas. To our desires to sin. Lord God, we pray that You would bring revival among Your people. Father, we pray that You would bring revival in our nation. That You would bring revivals in the nations of the earth. that Your people would live as Your people ought, that then we might truly be a light to those who do not know Christ. Father, may the refiner's fire cleanse and purify us, that we might be like gold and precious silver that honors You and reflects Your light and Your grace to a lost world. In Jesus' name we pray.